0: Well, good morning. Good to see you today. And uh, Ian, it's so great to have you with us. Ian McCormick, you are going to be blessed. Stay over. Uh, Second service come tomorrow night and be blessed. And then tonight, uh, Jared Davidoff will be speaking, and we'll have food trucks here at 6, and then we will have our final night of our crusade at 7 o'clock. And for those of you who've been a part of it, God has really done some amazing things. We've seen uh, uh, well over 100 decisions for Christ And God has uh, just done some amazing things in our midst. And to God be the glory. Amen. Amen and amen. Uh, Also glad to have a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Linus Morris. Doc, uh, Doc, where are you at? Back in the back? All right, turn around and give him a... Put put your hands together for Linus. Uh, I met Linus about 15 years ago. And he has planted a church in uh, Amsterdam and then in Geneva, Switzerland. And then came back and decided that he could uh, actually mobilize teams to do that. And I think they have planted well over 50 churches in Western Europe. And he is a, a great friend and glad to have him here uh, with us today. Um, you know, I heard a story about a newlywed couple who had moved into their new apartment. And the man came home to find his wife in tears, which is never a good sign if you've just gotten married. And he said, honey, what, what is wrong? And, and she said, well, I made dinner for you. And the dog got up on the table and ate it all. The man said, sweetheart, don't worry. We can get another dog. (laughs) You know, I love the story. Uh, uh, Everything can be replaced, it seems, except our eternal soul. Today I want to talk to you about your eternal soul. And I want to talk to it not only about those of you who are maybe without Christ, but I want to also talk to you those who are with Christ and what we can do to our soul story is told of a man by the name of Ali Hafid Ali Hafid was a contented man and all of his days he were filled with joy and happiness he enjoyed his family he enjoyed the land that he lived on he enjoyed everything about life one day a, a traveler came from a distant land and he sat down and he began to tell Ali Hafid about diamonds he'd never heard of such a thing as diamonds And with it, he said, you could buy anything you want with just a diamond the size of a man's hand. You could buy the world. That night, Ali Hafid went to bed, a discontented man, a man who really wasn't happy any longer. Now all he could think about was diamonds. All he could think about were those things that shine with all the brilliance of the sun and every color of the rainbow. And he wondered, how could he obtain these diamonds? In the morning, he got up, and he began to talk to the traveler, and he, he asked him more about it, and he said, where could I find these? And he said, in the, in the, in the land beyond the sand, and in, in the land where, the, where there's flowing of all kinds of great things, and Ali Hafad that day made a decision. The decision was that he would leave his home. He would leave his family. He would leave everything that he had, and he would go in the pursuit of diamonds, and one day he would return. And as he returned, he would bring home these diamonds, and he would, he would show his family his worth, and he would bless his family with all these great riches. Well, Ali, Ali Hafid spent his life trying to find these diamonds, and in the end, he left himself a dejected man, poor, starving, and finally threw himself into the ocean, ending it all. You see, Ali Hafid didn't understand something about life, that the riches that he really had were there all along. The new owner of his property came, and one day he was out by the stream that ran behind the, the, the property there, and he looked down and he saw something that flashed with the color of the rainbow. He put that, that rock, that shiny rock on his mantle, and that same traveler came by not too long after and as he sat down, he looked on the mantle, and he noticed, and he recognized it immediately as a diamond. And he says, Ali Hafid, come back. Did he find the diamonds? He said, no, Ali Hafid has never come back. He said, where did you get the diamond? He said, I found it in the stream behind our property there. It's full of these diamonds. You see, Ali Hafid all along lived on what is known as the Golcana diamond fields. Richer than even the Kimberly diamonds. All the time, the riches of all eternity, it seemed, for him, were in his backyard. The Lord Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits or loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I want to talk to you a little bit about your soul, and I want to give you one more scripture from the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 24 and verses 3 and 4 It says, through wisdom, a house is built. By understanding, it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all the precious, all the pleasant riches. If you go back and take a look at that, it is through wisdom. You're going to find three words that are laced their way through the book of Proverbs. It is wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And that trilogy of words is pointing you to God himself. For it is in wisdom that we understand the Father who is wisdom to us. It is through the understanding that we understand the Spirit of God who enlightens us and brings to our mind all the deep riches of God. And it is by knowledge that we come to know about God and the things of God in the Son of the living God. As you think about your soul, your soul is your innermost part. It is the place that God has reserved for himself. But it is also the place of your mind and your will and your emotions. It's a place where we can store all kinds of things. But, but sometimes we store and we hide and we bury our wounds and we bury our hurts and we bury our guilt and we bury our memories there. These are things that are just too painful to retain in the conscious mind. And so we push them in to the subconscious mind and we try not to deal with them or, or work with them. Brain scientists tell us that we can only actively really navigate five to eight thoughts in our conscious mind at one time. But in our subconscious mind, we can process some 400 billion thoughts at one time. But what happens is, as those thoughts move from our conscious mind into our subconscious mind, now they're stored like a filing cabinet that's overstuffed. But sometimes if those are the wrong kinds of thoughts, if those are toxic thoughts, if those are hurts or pains or difficulties, we've really never yielded fully to God. Those become open doors for the enemy to come. And he begins to look for a strategy of destruction through those those things of the past, those open doors. You see, if the enemy, if we don't fully deal with a wound in our life, if we don't fully deal with an issue or a sin in our life, then Satan has legal right to begin that strategy of attack and bring us to a place of defeat. There's five aspects of your soul. We think of it more normally as the human being, but it really is that, that spiritual man, the soul, where sensation is one of those dimensions of the soul. We know that the rich man and Lazarus both had the sensation in that underworld. We know that another aspect of the soul is our thought. We have a brain, but we also have a mind, and our mind is eternal. It's a part of the makeup of that spiritual man. We also have a belief system. Our belief system goes with us from from here into the grave and then into all eternity. We have desire within that soul. It's an aspect of the soul, and we have a will. We have a choice that we can make. But as you think about your soul, I want you to think about some of the conditions of your soul. The Bible says we can destroy our very soul. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, let's look what the scripture says. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, we see that and we've heard that scripture, but sometimes that is pulled out of context and we don't see it in the big picture of what God is trying to communicate. Let me just back up and read verses 26 and 27. He says, fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. Now, think about that. Everything you cover up, God reveals. Nothing. Everything will be exposed before the hand of God. And then it says, and hid that shall not be known. God is saying, I want you to live a transparent life. I want you to live a life that is open before me. It goes on to say this, what I tell you in darkness... That speak. In other words, what God is saying, I'm going to whisper things to you in the darkness of the night. I'm going to speak to you when no one is around. I'm going to tell you great and mighty things. And what I speak to you in the darkness, I want you to speak in the light. And then he says, and what you hear in the ear, that you preach upon the housetops. And then he says, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Don't fear those when you speak my name. Don't fear anyone. Don't let the enemy intimidate you. Don't let circumstances or situations intimidate you. You see, there is a warning to all who would claim to follow Christ in this. I believe that we do not see New Testament results because we do not live out New Testament faith. If we were living our faith out like the believers of the first century, what kind of things would we see transpiring in our world? I went through various articles on on the website this past week and just read about those who have stood for their faith in different places. In one situation where a a group of Christians were, were handcuffed and getting ready to face death, and the last words out of their mouth were to these ISIS terrorists were, Father, forgive them. You know, I remember one by the name of Saul. We know him in the Bible as Paul who was converted because of the, of the stoning of Stephen, and it was the last words where he said, I see Jesus, I see Jesus, and he's, he's there at the right hand of the Father, and it says that that was, a, that was something that just kept goading against Paul all of his life. You see, I believe New Testament faith is still available, but we must reclaim it. We must reclaim it in the murky waters of doubt. When doubt rises up, we say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. We've got to reclaim it in amidst all the religious traditions that get in the way and all, all the covered pride that is overly concerned with being proper. Have you ever felt like you just had to be proper and not speak his name? Ever felt like you just couldn't really be what God wanted you to be because what would other people think? I was talking to someone this last week and they were saying, "Well, I'm just so afraid if I don't get it right, you know, I'm not if I don't communicate the gospel right and and I said, "Well, where do you think their destiny will be if you say nothing?" Think about that. We have lost the fervency and the power of the Holy Spirit and we need a fresh baptism of power, one that fears only God. Then we preach the message of God on the housetop, as Jesus said. Then on every street, the message of Christ will be proclaimed without fear and without shame. Jesus asked then, again, another aspect or condition of our soul, what would you give in exchange for your soul? It says in Matthew 16, 26, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What would you give up for that? What would be the thing? Don't be fooled by a counterfeit. What would you really give? And now remember this, your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotion, and that dimension of you that is so linked to God that you cannot separate it. And what we do is we try to separate our will and our mind and our emotion from that, and we say, over here, I will, I will give myself to this, but over here, I'll, I'll try to live my life for God. He says, you can't do that. What will you give in exchange? God, I, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. God, I I really love you, and God, I really want to follow you, but I can't give you my time because I've given my time to these other things. I'm beginning to exchange my soul for things. So I live out my life in this one dimension, but in this other dimension I'm trying to say, God, I love you with all my heart. Jesus would go right to the heart of that. There's an old word in the Old English. It's the word vex. We don't use it anymore at all, but it's a word that has such depth, I want to give you a bit of an understanding of what it means to vex your soul. It says throughout Scripture, there were those whose soul were vexed. It means to irritate. It means to plague or to torment. It means to harass or to afflict or to disturb, to disquiet, to agitate, to trouble or to distress. Do you ever do that to your soul? You ever irritate your soul or plague your soul or torment your soul? Let me take you to Scripture, Luke chapter 6 and verse 18. It it says, and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. It says that they who were vexed. It says those who were irritated or plagued or tormented, harassed, afflicted, disturbed, disquieted, agitated, troubled, or distressed. You see, when our soul is vexed, it's an open door to oppression, It's a door that says, come in, and I welcome you in. You know, so many people deal with dark moments of discouragement and depression. It's become almost just epidemic. The front cover of the Time magazine has a a picture of a fish hook, and on it is a a pill, and it talks about the opiates in America. Prescription drugs. Right now, there's enough prescribed drugs by doctors in America, for every single man, woman, and child to have a one-month supply. And what happens is when these opiates come in, what they found out in research is that your pain receptors double and you remap your nervous system. So in other words, when it says it doubles your receptors, it means that now you need twice as much as you needed before because your body expects you to go through pain. And if you don't go through pain, your body says something's wrong because pain is there to slow you down. So the body automatically morphs itself and doubles the pain receptors. Then it begins to remap your nervous system. And we're living in a day where it is epidemic. It is a greater problem with opiates today than it is with heroin. That's shocking, isn't it? And yet how easy is it to go in? I was in a doctor's office not too long ago because I fell down some stairs and hyperextended my leg, and it hurt so bad that nobody in this room would have survived it. And I didn't know if I needed surgery. I didn't know what I need. I've never had surgery. I've never spent the night in a hospital. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. I just figured it was easier to stay out of that place, right? Amen? And so uh, so the doctor said to me, well, why don't I give you some pain medicine? And I said, like what? And he began to tell me things, and I said, you know, I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to get myself in that world because I'm not sure what that will do to me. But it was so easy. Just, well, if your knee hurts, well, I'll give you something. I'll give you a little, I'll fix it for you right now. You see, and, and, and what happens is we open up our heart to things sometimes, and, and spiritual oppression comes in, and, and Satan comes in, and he says, let me have some legal right. Have you ever, you ever heard anybody talking who's going through a bad time, and they said, I feel like Job? You ever heard that? Have you ever felt like Job? Right? I feel like Job. Now, what that typically means is, I'm a really good person, and I'm having the worst day of any human being on planet Earth. Nothing can be compared to the day that I'm having, right? That's what it means to be in Job. And a lot of people are confused by Job because they look at Job and they say, well, Job was a good guy. Why did that happen? And when you open up the Bible in the first chapter of Job, you know, here is God, and here are all the angels of God, and then it says, Satan appeared before God also, and God says to him, now this is interesting, God says to him, where have you been? He said, I've been going to and fro across the earth, right? In other words, I'm, I'm looking for someone to clobber. That's what I'm really doing. And then God does the unthinkable. He brings up Job's name. He said, have you considered my servant Job? For there's none like him on the earth that turns away from evil and fears God. He says, you know what, if I touch him, if I touch him, he will curse God. Basically, God says you can do anything you want to him, you just can't kill him. Now, you know, those are the times when you really don't want God to remember your name. Amen? I mean, I just, you no, know, just forget it. Just leave me alone for a little while, right? So we, we, the main reason it gets so confusing to us is because we look at Job and we say, if he was such a good guy, why did God do that? Well, let me ask the question, was he really that good of a guy? What was he really living by? I'm going to take you to, to a passage in Job chapter 19 and verse 12 and listen to what it says. How long will you vex my soul, Job asks. How long will you vex my soul? Job 33.9 says this, Job's words, I am pure without transgression, I am innocent and there is no iniquity in me. You know what Job's problem was? He was self-righteous. Job was a self-righteous man. Was he a good man? Yes, he was a good man. Did he turn away from evil? Absolutely. He was what we would call today a good moral person. But he was self-righteous. He had opened the door to self, by self-righteousness to the enemy to come in and oppress him. You know what we know about Job when we go to the last chapter, chapter 42 of the book of Job? We know this. We know that Job says this before God. He says, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. But it wasn't over yet. It says that when Job prayed for his friends, God restored the fortunes to Job. Job had to give up self-righteousness first. He thought he was better than his friends. He thought he was justified in whatever he did. He said, no, you have to humble yourself. You have to realize who you are and who I am. Because you see, what God did, now watch this. This is, this is interesting. What God did, because of his self-righteousness, God opened a door for the enemy to come in and bring oppression on Job. Let me ask you something. Are there any doors open in your life right now that need to be closed? could be in any area in your life. God wants us to close some doors in our life. You see, God is the redeemer of our soul. This is the other aspect of what God brings in our life is redemption. I love Psalm 34, 22. It says this, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. You know what that means? It means to buy back. We're in slavery and God buys us back. He redeems the soul of the servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. What about these words? What Jesus said in Matthew 22 and 37. It says, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. How? Why, you should love him with all your heart. You should love him with all your soul. You should love him with all of your mind. Isn't it interesting that he put those things together? He said, I want you to love me with your heart. I want you to love me with your soul. I want you to love me with your mind because those are going to be the three avenues that the enemy is going to come in. He's going to come in and he's going to hit you on the emotional level in your heart, in the spiritual level in your heart. He's going to hit your mind and your will and your emotions and he's going to come in and he's going to look for an open door, an old wound, some guilt, condemnation. He's going to look for those things and when he finds them, what he's going to do, he's going to try to start getting his way in there. You know what your heart is? It's the center of your physical and spiritual life. Right in the center of your physical and spiritual life, he wants to get there. Your soul is the seat of your feelings and your your affections and your emotions. He wants to get there. Have you ever ever felt like down? Anybody ever felt a little discouraged, Anybody just raise your hand. Let's see if, yeah, is that everybody? Is Is that okay? Is that everybody, right? But you know, where did that come from? It didn't start with emotions. It started in your mind. It started with a thought that then generated itself into an emotion. God wants, knows that if, if Satan can capture our attention, he'll soon be controlling our actions. So he captures us, and he, he begins to capture us through the mind. Then, he begins, then we choose, and we say, yeah, that must be true. The accuser of the brother never comes in second person. He always comes in first person. He gets us to say it. He gets us to say things like, well, I'm no good or I'm worthless, or God doesn't love me. He doesn't say it from the, the second person saying, God doesn't love you, you're no good. No, he gets us to confess it. Because what we confess with our mouths becomes a reality, does it not? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As you begin to think and process through life, don't, doesn't that become a part of your daily life? I mean, how many people have grown up with hearing those things from parents and friends that they're worthless or they're fat or they're, they're not smart or whatever, and they begin to live out that reality in their daily life. And the enemy then takes that in the spiritual dimension. He begins to attack us from that angle, and we begin to fall and crumble, and we go, well, how did I get here? Doesn't God love me? Of course he does. But you filled your mind with so much other stuff that you can't break through. You can't get through. Bible also says you can lose your soul. Have you ever lost anything? I mean, what do you do when you've lost something? You look for it like crazy, right? I, I, I went through a period of time where I lost my keys every day. Have you ever, you ever had that? Like lose your keys. And then, then my wife got me one of those clappers, you know, you clap your hands and it beeps, right? Well, that only does good if you're close to the keys, Right? I mean, I could lose my keys like miles away, and where are my keys? I don't know where my keys are, and I'd clap, you know, and, 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 uh, and you, it's just crazy kind of stuff, but you lose it. The Bible talks about a woman who lost a coin. Remember that? She lost a coin. It talks about a lost coin and a lost son and a lost sheep there in, in Luke chapter 15. But it says she lost her coin, and she began to sweep, sweep that floor. Looking for that one coin that was lost. Why? Why was it so important for her to find one coin? Well, we could, we could speculate and say, well, maybe she was, just needed the money and she couldn't pay rent. Why would she sweep that floor? Those floors in that day were dirt. They weren't like the nice floors we have today. And so it would be easy to be hid in the dirtiness of the floor. But if you know what she was talking about, the traditions there, when a woman was married, she was given 10 coins. And they had holes in them, and they would string a piece of string or thread through it, and then she would wear that around her head. If she was ever found unfaithful, they would take one of the coins away. And she was lost in her humility, in her shame. She didn't want to leave her house until she found the coin. It was lost in the dirtiness of life. And you see, sometimes we don't, want to move in any direction because of shame. And we, like the woman, have lost something. But God says, I'm in the business of lost and found. Remember that game lost and found? When I was a kid, I was kind of a big kid. I was always a big kid. I was born, I was about 11 pounds, you know. And, uh, you know, some of you I know were, were born big and, you know, and, and I just kind of stayed big, you know. I was, uh, when I was in fifth grade, I was 5'7 and weighed 155 pounds. That's a big kid. Some of you are just 155 pounds now, That's, right? Amen, right? And so I love playing hide and seek, but I wasn't very good at it because I, I just couldn't get all of me hid. You know, I'd crawl under something and part of me would be sticking out. But you know what? God can always find you. See, God is in the lost and found business. We're lost and he is in the finding business. And you might be small and hid, and you, you're tucked away, but, you know, God can find you because he's always seeking after you. He's always wanting to love you. You see, sometimes we don't know what it's going to take. Uh, is a few months ago, and this is a, a bit of a sad story. I, I went out with a friend here in our church, and he wanted me to meet a friend of his because this guy was struggling in life. He was struggling in his relationship. He was struggling in his job. And a lot of things were going on. And we sat down and we talked for probably two hours about God. He even came to church a couple of times. And, and we kind of lost track. I lost track of him. He didn't, but he kept up with him. And we were trying to minister to this guy. And he would, he would always say thanks. But, you know, when I would text him thanks, but he was very distant. And so there was no way into his life. And just last week, my friend read me a text from him. And it says something to the effect I don't want to hear any more about God. I don't want to hear any more about the spirit. I don't want to read the Bible. I'm not coming to church. Leave me alone. I hate my job. My family has fallen apart. His world had hit a wall. And he determined somehow life without God was going to be better. Life without his family was going to be better. Life without his job was going to be better. You see, in a sense, he had lost his soul. He was wandering. He didn't know what to do. And that God-shaped vacuum that God has given us, whereby we live and move and have our being, it had been damaged, it had been hurt, but it had also been lost. The conflicts of life can do that to us. Leonard Ravenhill said this, he said, if there are a million roads that lead to hell, there's not one that leads out. Think of that. If there's a million roads that lead to hell, there's not one that leads out. You know, what joy when we see people come to faith in Christ. Friday and Saturday night, we saw so many people coming to faith in Christ, people weeping. And you just say, God's redeemed, and we just pray that, that they really understand and that they really are moving in that, in that direction, and we can help them do that. Let me give you a couple of life applications I want you to think about. What can I do? What can I do about my soul? I think, I think one of the things you can do about your soul is ask yourself, is there anything in my soul right now that, that is an open door that I need to somehow close? Is there anything that in my life right now I say, you know what, it's pulling me away, it's distracting me from God, I need to close that door. And if there is, what you can do is you can repent from that. You say, God, enough of that. I don't want that in my life anymore. I want to turn around, and, and that word repent is the Greek word. It means to. I'm going this way, and I literally turn around, and I say, I'm going to go this way instead. I'm going to go this way instead. You can, you can be filled with the Spirit of God. You see, what happens is when we, when we live in a, in a vacuum, you know, all this junk comes into our life, but we can say, Holy Spirit of God, would you fill me? Would you control me? Would you minister to me? And it's just as simple as that. It's like I want to push some stuff out, and I want to just invite you to take influence over me. And what I can do is I can decide that now. That's the great thing is I don't have to wait. I can decide that right now. You know, the guy that I talked about a minute ago, If he were to right now say, you know what, God, I was wrong. I was wrong. I want to repent right now. I know that you love me. I don't understand why my life has gone this way, and I know it's a combination of bad choices. I know it's a combination of of just maybe a lack of knowledge or understanding, and and maybe it's just circumstances, and maybe it's even just just the way I'm made and the way I was raised, whatever it is. But, God, right now I want to repent, and I want to turn to you. You know what God would say? Come to my arms, my son. Welcome home. I love you. You see, the love of God never stops. Never stops drawing, does he? He never stops pulling. I can always decide right now. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, and I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I want you to just, I want you to look right now for open doors. And here's how you're going to do that. I want you to imagine right now you're walking down a hallway always well lit and it's filled with doors, hundreds of doors. But those doors are the doors of your life. And each one of those doors has a name on it, it has a tag on it, it, has a title on it of some kind. As you're going down those those doorways you notice that that they're all shut. They seem to be tight. You even reach down and you you grab. Just reach down and grab and check a couple of those doors. One of those doors is Maybe a door that talks about your life in a very intimate way. Something you never share with somebody and you notice that that door is unlocked. You look across the hall and there's another door it's cracked open. And I wouldn't presume to know what is on your door, the doors of your heart. But you have a choice right now. I want you just to take that door where you've got a crack open and say, God, forgive me. I've left a door open for the enemy, and I want to shut that door this morning. You're just going to reach inside. You're going to turn the lock, and you're going to pull the door shut, and you're going to double-check it. You're going to say, that door's shut this morning. One of those doors might be labeled pride. You say, you know, God, I've been a proud man, a proud woman, and I... I want to humble myself before you and I'm going to put the lock on and I'm going to pull that door shut. I'm not going to let the enemy get in. I'm going to humble myself before the mighty hand of God. You look across the hallway and there's another door there. And that door says impure thoughts. Somehow you've justified impure thoughts because nobody knows. Nobody sees. Nobody's going there. You might be addicted to pornography. You think it's hidden, but it's not. God sees. You see. The damage is done, but it can be reversed. You say, God, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut that door. I don't want that door in my life anymore. And you reach inside and you turn that little lock and you pull it shut and you say, Enough, the enemy's not gonna get in there. Another one of those doors is other people's view of you. And you, you feel like people maybe don't like you. I've seen this as one of the key ways the enemy gets in. People just feel unliked. They feel unloved. And maybe you've got a reason for it. Maybe you grew up in a home where you weren't loved. If that's the case, you need to just maybe get it, the name of that person, the face of that person in your mind right now and look them in the eye and just say, I forgive you for not loving me and accepting me. I forgive you. I know you are probably operating out of your own hurt and your own pain, and I forgive you. And then you're just going to ask God to fill you right now with his love and his acceptance. We've all heard that statement, hurting people hurt people. Well, let's not be hurting people so we're not tempted to hurt someone. You reach inside that door, you block it, and you pull it shut and say, I'm turning away from that. That's not going to be an open door for me anymore. Now, i got to warn you right now, those doors have a tendency to come back open. And you have to set a new pattern in your life, a pattern of joy and a pattern of love, a pattern of acceptance, a pattern of keeping those doors shut. And I wonder if you would just pray a prayer like this one. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it in your own heart right now. Dear Lord Jesus, my soul belongs to you. My soul has been wounded. I've exchanged my soul for some things that just aren't good and healthy. But I want to reject those things right now. I give you my mind, my soul, and my heart that I might love the Lord my God with all of those aspects. Jesus, fill me with your spirit right now. Take away the hurt, the pain, the difficulties, the struggles of life. And give me the joy that passes all understanding. We're just going to keep our heads bowed for a moment. But I wonder, how many of you would say, you know what, I closed some doors today. You don't have to reveal what those doors are. Just raise your hand up. Would you say I closed those doors? God, you see these hands? We're just going to hold them up before you right now, God. You see these hands that are lifted up right now? They're hands of faith. They're hands of desire. God, we want, we want all of us, God, to live for you. We want want our life to be just exemplifying your love and your grace and your mercy. And we want to extend that to other people. So, God, in faith, every hand here that you see today, God, is a hand of faith. It is an offering, a wave offering before the Lord. God, we wave before you and we say, take our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. In the wonderful name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen.